0: Chapter 4 of Autobiography of a Seaman. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Timothy Ferguson. Autobiography of a Seaman by Thomas Cochrane. Chapter 4 Services in the Mediterranean. Towards the close of the autumn of 1798, Lord Keith was appointed to relieve Lord St. Vincent in the command of the Mediterranean fleet, and kindly offered to take me with him as a supernumerary. I therefore embarked, by his lordship's invitation, in the flagship. We arrived at Gibraltar on the 14th of December, and found Lord St. Vincent residing on shore, his flag flying upon the souverain sheer hulk his lordship's reception of me was very kind and on the twenty fourth of december at lord keith's request he gave an order for my appointment to the bar floor to which ship lord keith had shifted his flag this appointment from a certain dissatisfaction at my having received such a commission after being so short a time at sea afterwards brought me into trouble lord st vincent did not as was expected immediately transferred to Lord Keith, the command of the Mediterranean fleet, but remained at Gibraltar, giving orders to his lordship to blockade the Spanish fleet in Cadiz. The first part of the year was spent in this employment, Lord Keith's force varying from 11 to 15 sail of the line, but without frigates. Though the commander-in-chief had a considerable number under his orders, the omission was the more remarkable as the blockaded Spanish force numbered upwards of 20 ships of the line, with frigates and smaller vessels in proportion the british force for upwards of four months was anchored some seven or eight miles from cadiz but without rousing the national spirit of the spaniards who manifested no disposition to quit their shelter even though we were compelled from time to time to leave our anchorage for the purpose of procuring water and cattle from the neighbouring coast of africa it was during one of these trips in the Barfleur that an absurd affair involved me in serious disaster our first lieutenant beaver was an officer who carried etiquette in the wardroom and on deck almost to despotism he was laudably particular in all matters visible to the eye of the admiral but permitted an honest penny to be turned elsewhere by a practice as reprehensible as revolting on our frequent visits to Tetuan, we purchased and killed bullocks on board the bar fleur for the use of the whole squadron the reason was that raw hides being valuable could be stowed away in her hold in empty beef casks, as a special prerequisite to certain persons connected with the flagship. A natural result being that, as the fleshy parts of the hides decomposed, putrid liquor oozed out of the casks, and rendered the hold of the vessel so intolerable that she acquired the name of the Stinking Scotch Ship. As a junior lieutenant, much of the unpleasantness of this fell to my share, and... I always had a habit of speaking my mind without much reserve. It followed that those interested in the rawhide speculation were not very friendly disposed towards me. One day, when at Tetuan, having obtained leave to go ashore and amuse myself with shooting wild-fowl, my dress became so covered with mud as to induce me not to come off with other officers in the pinnace which took me on shore, preferring to wait for the launch in which the filthy state of my apparel would be less apparent the launch being delayed longer than had been anticipated my leave of absence expired shortly before my arrival on board not without attracting the attention of lieutenant beaver who was looking over the gangway thinking it disrespectful to report myself on the quarterdeck in so dirty a condition i hastened to put on clean uniform an operation scarcely completed when lieutenant beaver came into the wardroom and in a very harsh tone demanded the reason of my not having reported myself my reply was that as he saw me come up the side he must be aware that my dress was not in a fit condition to appear on the quarter-deck and that it had been necessary to change my clothes before formally reporting myself lieutenant Beaver replied to this explanation in a manner so offensive that it was clear he wanted to surprise me into some act of insubordination as it would have been impossible to be long cool in opposition to marked invective I respectfully reminded him that by attacking me in the wardroom he was breaking a rule which he himself had laid down viz that matters connected with the service were not there to be spoken of the remark increased his violence which at length became so marked as to call forth the reply lieutenant beaver we will if you please talk of this in another place he then went on deck and reported to captain elphinstone that in reply to his remarks on a violation of duty he had received a challenge on being sent for to answer the charge an explanation of what had really taken place was given to captain elphinstone who was kindly desirous that the first lieutenant should accept an apology and let so disagreeable a matter drop this was declined on my part on the ground that in the conversation which had passed i had not been in the wrong and had therefore no apology to make the effect was that beaver demanded a court-martial on me and this after manifest reluctance on the part of lord keith was ordered accordingly, the decision of which was an admonition to be more careful in the future, a clear proof that the court thought great provocation had been given by my accuser, or their opinion would have been more marked. The judge advocate on this occasion was the Admiral's secretary, one of those who had taken offence about the Royal hides before mentioned. After the business of the court was concluded, Lord Keith, who was much vexed with the whole affair, said to me privately, Now, Lord Cochrane pray avoid for the future all flippancy towards superior officers his secretary overheard and embodied the remark in the sentence of the court-martial so that shortly thereafterwards his officiousness or malice formed an impediment to my promotion though the court had actually awarded no censure lord keith who had in vain used every endeavour to induce the spaniards to risk an engagement began to get tired of so fruitless an operation As that of watching an enemy at anchor under their batteries, and resolved to try if he could not entice or force them to quit their moorings. With this view, the British force, though then consisting of twelve ships only, without a single frigate to watch the enemy meanwhile, proceeded to water as usual at Tetuan, so as to be in readiness for any contingencies that might arise. As the events which followed have been incorrectly represented by naval historians, if not in one instance misrepresented it is necessary in order to do justice to lord keith to detail them at some length immediately after our return from tetuan the childers arrived with intelligence that five spanish sail of the line had got out of ferrol and she was followed on the same day by the success frigate which had been chased by a french fleet off her porto lord keith at once dispatched the childers to gibraltar to inform lord st vincent as it was understood in the squadron that he intended, if a French fleet came to Cadiz, to engage them, notwithstanding the disparity of numbers. Lord Keith's force, by the arrival of three additional ships of the line and one frigate, now amounted to sixteen sail, viz. one 112-gun ship, 498s, one ninety, two 774s and one frigate, and these were immediately got under way, And formed in order of battle standing off and on in front of the harbour about 8 a.m on the 6th of may the french fleet was sighted in the offing and was made out to consist of thirty three sail which with the twenty two sail of spaniards in cadiz made fifty five besides frigates to be encountered by the comparatively small british force the french fleet was on the same larboard tack and our ships immediately formed on the same tack to receive them to our surprise, they soon afterwards wore and stood away to the south-west, though, from our position, between them and the Spaniards, they had a fair chance of victory had the combined fleets acted in concert. According to Lord Keith's pithily expressed opinion, we lay between the devil and the deep sea. Yet, there was nothing rash. Lord Keith calculated that the Spaniards would not move, unless the french succeeded in breaking through the british line and this he had no doubt of preventing besides which the wind though not dead on shore as has been said was unfavourable for the spaniards coming out with the necessary rapidity the great point to be gained was to prevent the junction of the enemy's fleets as was doubtless intended the attempt was however completely frustrated by the bold interposition of lord keith who strange to say never received for this signal service the acknowledgment of merit, which was his due. It has been inferred by naval historians that a gale of wind which was blowing on the first appearance of the French fleet was the cause of their standing away. A better reason was their disinclination to encounter damage, which they knew would defeat their ultimate object of forming a junction with the Spanish fleet elsewhere. At daylight on the 7th, we were still standing off and on before Cadiz, expecting the enemy to return when shortly afterwards four of their ships were seen to windward of the british force which immediately gave chase but the enemy outstripping us we returned to the coast to guard every point by which they might get into cadiz seeing no symptoms of the main body of the french fleet lord keith concluded that the four ships just noticed had been left as a decoy to draw his attention from their real object of running for toulon now that they had been returned to port man Intelligence of the sailing of the French fleet having reached that port which, Lord St. Vincent feared, might become the object of attack. Lord Keith, however, knowing exactly the position of the enemy, within reach of whom we now virtually were, persevered in the pursuit. Shortly afterwards, another fast-sailing transport hove into sight, firing guns for Lord Keith to bring to, which, having done, he received pre orders to repair immediately to Menorca lord st vincent still imagining that as the enemy had left toulon they might catch him in port man the fact of their having gone to spezia though known to us being unknown to him compliance with this unseasonable order was therefore compulsory and lord keith made the signal for all captains when as reported by those officers his lordship explained that the bearing up was no act of his and the captains having returned on board their respective ships reluctantly changed their course for minorca leaving the French fleet to proceed unmolested to Spezia. On Lord Keith's receiving this order, I never saw a man more irritated. When annoyed, his lordship had a habit of talking aloud to himself. On this occasion, as officer of the watch, I happened to be in close proximity, and thereby became an involuntary listener to some very strong expressions, imputing jealousy on the part of Lord St. Vincent, as constituting the motive for recalling him. The actual words of lord keith not being meant for the ear of anyone i do not think proper to record them the above facts are stated as coming within my own personal knowledge and are here introduced in consequence of blame being cast on lord keith to this day by naval historians who could only derive their authority from data which are certainly untrue even if official had the command been surrendered to lord keith on his arrival in the mediterranean or had his lordship Being permitted promptly to pursue the enemy, they could not have escaped. The French fleet, after we were compelled to relinquish the chase, when in sight of their lookout frigates, were reported to have landed a thousand men at Savona and convoyed a supply of wheat to Genoa, as well as having landed their naval stores at Spezia, not one of which services could have been effected, had it not been for the unfortunate delay at Gibraltar, and the before mentioned recall of the pursuing fleet. Immediately after our departure from Gibraltar, the Spanish fleet quitted Cadiz for the Mediterranean, and as no force remained to watch the straits, they were enabled to pass with impunity. The whole, after suffering great damage by a gale of wind, succeeded in reaching Cartagena. On our arrival at Minorca, Lord St. Vincent resumed the command and proceeded for some distance toward Toulon. On the 2nd of June, his Lordship again quitted the fleet for man, in the ville de paris on the fourteenth lord keith shifted his flag from the barfleur to the queen charlotte a much finer ship to which i had the honour to accompany him we once more proceeded in quest of the french fleet and on the nineteenth the advanced ships captured three frigates and two brigs of war on their way from egypt to toulon but learned nothing of the fleet we were in search of on the twenty third of june lord st vincent at length resigned the mediterranean command and sailed for England, so that Lord Keith had no alternative but to return to Port Man to make the necessary arrangements. Scarcely had we come to anchor when we received intelligence that the French fleet had passed to the westward to join the Spanish fleet at Cartagena. Without even losing time to fill up with water, every exertion was made for immediate pursuit, and on the 10th we started for Cartagena, but finding the enemy gone, again made sail, and on the 26th reached Tetuan, where we completed our water. On the twenty ninth, Lord Keith communicated with Gibraltar, but as nothing was heard of the combined fleets, it was evident they had gone through the straits in the dark. We therefore followed and examined Cadiz, where they were not. Pursuing our course without effect along the Spanish and Portuguese coasts, on the 8th of August we fell in with a Danish brig off Cape Finisterre, and received from her information that she had two days before passed through the combined french and spanish fleets we then directed our course for brest hoping to be in time to intercept them but found that on the day before our arrival they had effected their object and were then safely moored within the harbour we now shaped our course for torbay and there found the channel fleet under sir alan gardner the united force being nearly fifty ships of the line on our arrival at torbay lord keith sent me with dispatches on board the commander-in-chief's ship where, after executing my commission, it was imperiously demanded by her captain whether I was aware that my coming on board was an infringement of quarantine regulations. Nettled at the overbearing manner of an uncalled-for reprimand to an inferior officer, my reply was that, having been directed by Lord Keith to deliver his dispatches, his lordship's orders had been executed accordingly. At the same time, however, assuring my interrogator that we had no sickness in the fleet, nor had we been in any contagious localities. From the captain's manner it was almost evident that for being thus plain-spoken he intended to put me under arrest and i was not sorry to get back to the queen charlotte even a show of resistance to an excessive authority being in those days fatal to many an officer's prospects i shall not enter into detail as to what occurred in the channel suffice it to say that despite the imposing force lying at torbay the combined french and spanish fleets found no difficulty in getting out of brest and that on the sixth of december Lord Keith returned in pursuit to Gibraltar, where he resumed the Mediterranean command, administered by Lord Nelson during his absence. It is beyond the province of this work to notice the effectual measures taken by Lord Nelson in the Mediterranean during our absence, as they are matters in which I bore no part. But whilst Nelson and Lord Keith had been doing their best there, little appeared to be done at home to check the enemy's operations from gibraltar we proceeded to sicily where we found lord nelson surrounded by the elite of neapolitan society amongst whom he was justly regarded as a deliverer it was never my good fortune to serve under his lordship either at that or any subsequent period during our stay at palermo i had however opportunities for personal conversation with him and from one of his frequent injunctions never mind manoeuvres always go at them i subsequently had reason to consider myself indebted for successful attacks under apparently difficult circumstances the impression left on my mind during these opportunities of association with nelson was that of his being an embodiment of dashing courage which would not take much trouble to circumvent an enemy but being confronted with one would regard victory so much a matter of course as hardly to deem the chance of defeat worth consideration this was in fact the case for though the enemy's ships were for the most part superior to ours in build The discipline and seamanship of their crews was in that day so inferior as to leave little room for doubt of victory on our part. It was probably with the object of improving his crews that Admiral Brew had risked a run from the Mediterranean to Brest and back, as just now detailed. Had not Lord Keith delayed at Gibraltar and afterwards recalled to Menorca, the disparity of numbers on our side would not have been of any great consequence." Trafalgar itself is an illustration of Nelson's peculiar dash. It has been remarked that Trafalgar was a rash action, and that had Nelson lost it and lived, he would have been brought to a court-martial for the way in which that action was conducted. But such coveilers forget that, from previous experience, he had calculated both the nature and amount of resistance to be expected, such calculation forming an essential part of his plan of attack as even his own means for making it. The result justified his expectations of victory, which were not only well-founded, but certain. The fact is that many commanders in those days committed the error of overrating the French Navy, just as in the present day we are nationally falling into the still more dangerous extreme of underrating it. STEAM has, indeed, gone far towards equalising seamanship, and the strenuous exertions of the French Department of Marine have perhaps rendered discipline in their Navy as good as in ours they moreover keep their trained men whilst we thoughtlessly turn ours adrift whenever ships are paid off to be replaced by raw hands in the case of emergency to return from this digression after quitting palermo and when passing the straits of messina lord keith placed me as prize-master in command of the generot seventy four shortly before captured by lord nelson's squadron with orders to carry her to port Man. a crew was hastily made up of sick and invalidated men drafted from the ships of the fleet, and with these we proceeded on our voyage, but only to find ourselves in imminent danger from a gale of wind. The rigging not having been properly set up, the masts swayed with every roll of the ship to such a degree that it became dangerous to go aloft, the shrouds alternately straining almost to breaking or hanging in festoons as the masts jerked from side to side with the roll of the vessel. It was only by going aloft myself together with my brother archibald whom lord keith had permitted to accompany me that the men could be induced to furl the mainsail fortunately the weather moderated or the safety of the ship might have been compromised but by dint of hard work as far as the ill health of the crew would allow we managed before reaching man to put the genero into tolerable order it has been stated that lord keith permitted my brother to accompany me in the genero by this unexpected incident Both he and myself were in all probability saved from a fate which soon afterwards befell most of our gallant shipmates. On our quitting the Queen Charlotte, Lord Keith steered for Leghorn, where he landed and ordered Captain Todd to reconnoiter the island of Cabrera, then in possession of the French. Whilst on his way, some hay hastily embarked and placed under the half-deck became ignited, and the flame communicating with the mainsail set the ship on fire aloft and below. All exertions to save her proved in vain, and though some of the officers and crew escaped, more than three-fourths miserably perished, including Captain Todd, his first lieutenant Bainbridge, three other lieutenants, the captain of marines, surgeon, more than twenty master's mates and petty officers, and upwards of six hundred marines and seamen. On our return from England to Gibraltar, I had been associated with poor Bainbridge in an affair which, except as a tribute to his memory, would not have been worth mentioning. On the evening of the 21st of September, 1799, we observed from the Queen Charlotte, lying in Gibraltar Bay, the ten-gun cutter Lady Nelson, chased by some gun-vessels and privateers, all of which simultaneously commenced an attack upon her. Lord Keith instantly ordered out boats, Bainbridge taking command of the barge, whilst another of the boats was put under my orders. Lord Keith's intention was, by this prompt aid, to induce the Lady Nelson to make a running fight of it, so as to get within range of the garrison-guns, but before the boats could come up, she had been captured. Lord Bainbridge, though with sixteen men only, dashed at her, boarded and retook her, killing several and taking prisoners seven French officers and twenty-seven men, but not without himself receiving a severe sabre-cut on the head and several other wounds the boat under my command was the cutter with thirteen men seeing two privateers which had chiefly been engaged in the attack on the lady nelson running for Algeciras, we made it the nearest and came up with her at dark on laying the cutter alongside i jumped on board but the boat's crew did not follow this being the only time i ever saw british seamen betray symptoms of hesitation regaining the cutter i abraded them with the shamefulness of their conduct for the privateers crew had run below the helmsman alone being at his post their excuse were there were indications of the privateers men having fortified themselves no reasoning could prevail on them to board if this boats crew perished in the queen charlotte their fate is not nationally to be regretted on the destruction of the queen charlotte lord keith hoisted his flag in the audacious his lordship was so well satisfied with my conduct of the genero as to write home to the Admiralty recommending my promotion, at the same time appointing me to the command of the Speedy, then lying at Port Man. The vessel originally intended for me by Lord Keith was the Bon Citoyenne, a fine corvette of eighteen guns, but the brother of his Lordship's secretary, happening at the time to arrive from Gibraltar, where he had been superseded in the command of the Sheer-Hulk, that functionary managed to place his brother in one of the finest sloops then in the service. Leaving to me the least efficient craft on the station. End of chapter four recording by Timothy Ferguson, Gold Coast, Australia.